how many of you unlock your smartphone with your face? I'm so used to doing so that using a pin code or a password feels old school, not to mention less secure. Unlocking your phone with your face relies on facial recognition, a type of technology that recognizes human faces. Often, it involves matching someone's face to a previously stored image, either to verify or to index the picture. We already use facial recognition in so many day-to-day aspects of our lives. Some of them, like unlocking your phone, have to do with security. And a lot of them have to do with convenience, like sorting through the seemingly hundreds of selfies I have of myself. There are so many positive applications of artificial intelligence and facial recognition, but it means we also have to talk about the aspects that are more troubling, because of course the answer isn't to drop facial recognition technology altogether. And we're all responsible for understanding what's at stake. It's literally our identity. That's why, in this episode, I really want to face those questions head on. Today, we're talking facial recognition what it means, how it's being used, and what our response should be. If I use my face to unlock my phone and it doesn't work, that's not that big of a deal. But if law enforcement identifies somebody's face wrongfully and that person goes to jail, that is a big deal. And in fact, there have been recent high-profile cases in the U.S. where this is exactly what happened. The consequences can be very real. That's why it's significant that in June, Microsoft President Brad Smith announced that Microsoft is banning the use of their facial recognition technology by law enforcement in the U.S. until there are appropriate federal laws in place. But we'll get into that later this episode. First, I want to take a step back and look at facial recognition technology itself. How does it work? Who makes it work? That's up next. To get a better understanding of facial recognition, I spoke to John Weigelt, He's the chief technology officer at Microsoft Canada, and he loves what he does. Well, I got to tell you, I think I have the best job in the world. So uh, I get to help organizations from the smallest in Canada, the earliest startups to the largest, understand where technology is moving. And if I could be so bold, I'm uh, almost like the Wayne Gretzky of technology, understand where technology is moving so we can digitally transform our business uh, to be able to to go there. So get to talk about things like uh, machine learning or virtual reality or even quantum computers. John Weigelt also leads Microsoft Canada's responsible AI team. It means that whenever there's a use of Microsoft's artificial intelligence that might have a consequential impact on individuals, like making financial decisions or education decisions, his team will review those uses and give a recommendation for how to continue, kind of like ethical guardrails. When I asked him about the basics of facial recognition technology, he pointed me to Microsoft's six facial recognition principles, which he says are key for any person new to all of this to understand. Yeah. So when we start to look at the use of artificial intelligence, 
there's a need to put a, a structure around the use of these tools. Uh, and so learned individuals or uh, um, academics and, and, and others have put together some principles. Um, Satya Nadella restated those principles around AI. Think of them almost as uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, rules for robotics, right? You shall not harm people. Uh, and those then help guide and direct the use of these tools. They help inform the decision making. Uh, and so these six principles start off with fairness. These tools need to be fair. You need to uh, not differentiate uh, people um, based upon, uh, let's say, gender or based upon uh, ethnic backgrounds and things like that. So they need to be fair. They need to be accountable. So you need to be able to uh, have somebody, a human in the loop, perhaps, to be able to make a decision uh, and not necessarily be fully automated. They need to be transparent. How does this tool set make its decisions? You know, what is the uh, uh, use of this uh, tool set? There needs to be notice, and especially in the in the area of uh, facial recognition, right? Uh, you need to provide notice that these tools are in use and active in use to allow you then to meet that consent and choice side. Really, really important, non-discriminatory. Uh, and so we've seen some studies that are out there that some of these tools work very, very well for a certain demographic, uh, and they start to fail miserably for others. And so we really need to make sure of that. Uh, and then they need to be done in a lawful way. So lawful surveillance is the last term. Uh, and these should be used in a way that doesn't infringe on humans' rights. Right? And so the idea of mass surveillance is something that we would not be endorsing uh, in these communities. And we've seen that there are some uh, uh, communities that want to be able to provide safety to their residents and by putting up uh, facial recognition in uh, perhaps public spaces. And that's something that we feel uh, is not uh, uh, acceptable at this time. Facial recognition is such a hot topic. And it's one that Microsoft has actually had a lot to say about in the last couple of years. I mean, Microsoft has made some pretty big statements. Let's look back to, I think it was December of 2018, when Microsoft President Brad Smith called for government regulation for facial recognition technology. And then fast forward to just a few months ago when he made another statement. This time he was saying that the use of facial recognition technology that was made by Microsoft should be banned by um, law enforcement in the states, at least until a time when there are federal laws in place that are built around um, you know, human rights and human rights uh, basis. So what I want to know, John, is can you give us a little bit of insight into those decisions that Microsoft was making and tell us a little bit about some of the thinking behind them? Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, uh, artificial intelligence is a hot, hot topic. Uh, and the reason that it's such a hot topic is it has advanced exceptionally rapidly. Uh, and so over the last two years, we've seen rapid advances in uh, the tools that are used uh, for facial recognition uh, and artificial intelligence and uh, the evolution in the thinking as well. So, so there's this ton of activity that's there. And we, we know this from Canada's perspective because Canada is at the center of a lot of these uh, areas. Uh, and so when we looked at uh, two years ago, you know, artificial intelligence was uh, just coming into the marketplace, it was leaving from some of the academic realms, uh, and it was being democratized, right? And so coming out of academia, with a lot of research projects, and now starting to come out in the public, uh, and people starting to use it. And so that's where some of the principles around artificial intelligence were starting to land, some of the standards development was starting. Uh, and at the time, we recognized that, hey, the use of AI within um, external settings 
needed to be done in a thoughtful fashion. So typically people look at innovation and they say, I'm going to break things and then I'll pick up the pieces later. Hmm. Uh, and at the time in 2018, Brad Smith, our president said, look, artificial intelligence is a place where we want to be thoughtful and we want to be deliberate about our actions. So we don't want to break things. Uh, and especially in the case of facial recognition. In facial recognition, we want to move a little bit slower, a little bit more thoughtfully, and put in place the guardrails and constructs to be able to support them. Uh, and so that announcement in 2018 was, hey, let's uh, move carefully, thoughtfully, and let's see if we need to support additional new laws and new legislation to protect privacy, to protect individuals, the rights and freedoms of individuals in public spaces. Uh, and so that's where the activity got started and start to highlight that. Fast forward two years and man, who would have imagined that we were where we are today, right? Doing this podcast uh, remotely, you know, seeing e-learning, seeing virtual visits, the, the rapidity in which these tools have, have come into place and the changes, you know, we've seen two years of, uh, of innovation uh, happen in two months. And so then um, um, Brad Smith, our president, reasserted this case and said, look, uh, we will not, uh, um, we will discontinue the use of uh, facial recognition within law enforcement um, for in the U.S. Uh, because it's so important for human rights and freedoms and, uh, and those privileges. So that reassertion was done um, just, just uh, recently. How does that reassertion relate to us here in Canada, especially with regards to human rights and freedoms? Um, you know, I think we in Canada have those strong constructs here. We've led the world with our privacy legislation. It continues to stand the test of time, say for a few tweaks with the uh, European Union privacy legislation. And we also, by the way, lead with uh, research into AI ethics. So uh, the fairness, accountability, traceability and ethics teams in McGill or Microsoft Research in Montreal are leading the world with research in that area as well. So, you know, I think looking at all those different components and being able to kind of fit them together in a technology and a policy-centric, legal-centric way, you know, really sets us up for success in the future. Not that we've solved all the problems, this is terribly complex, but through these conversations uh, and through these consultations allows us to have, you know, that other lens that we need to uh, uh, keep Canadians comfortable with these tools. At the end there, John mentioned privacy. It immediately made me think of a newspaper article I read last year. It was about a mother who, over a decade ago, had put photos of her kids on a photo-sharing website so friends and family could see. As time went on, she forgot that she even had an account on that photo-sharing website. Sounds familiar, right? Turns out that the photos ended up in a database that was used to power some pretty sketchy facial recognition technology. When the mother learned what had become of the images, she felt guilty, angry, and betrayed. The day I read that article is the day I stopped posting photos of my own child's face online. So many of us upload photos of ourselves or our family to social media websites and goofy photo apps, and we have no idea what else our images are being used for. It's time to look more closely at the nuances of opting in. That's next. But first, a word from Microsoft. To learn more about why the responsible use of facial recognition technology is so important, I reached out to Dr. Michael Geist. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law 
and specializes in the intersection between law, technology, and policy. I asked Dr. Geist about what happens when you download a trendy photo filter app or experiment with the latest social media platform. Usually there's some screen of legalese with terms and conditions that we have to accept before getting to the fun stuff. Do you think people really understand what they're consenting to if they use one of those apps? Of course not. And they're frankly not intended to. You know, if people were to spend their time reading the terms and conditions and the privacy policies associated with every website that they visit or every app that they install, they would, I think, almost quite literally spend their time doing nothing but reading these terms and conditions. And so, uh, most people don't read really practically any of the terms and conditions. They might for for certain sites where it just their, their spidey sense tingles a little bit somehow and say, you know what, this doesn't feel totally right. Let me try to take a, a, a closer look at what exactly is intended. Part of the problem, of course, is that these are often drafted in a way that they are either difficult to understand, in which case you might not fully appreciate what you're agreeing to, or alternatively, they've carved out such a broad space for usage that, in fact, you realize that what you are consenting to is basically any potential use now and forever. And so that doesn't provide a whole lot of comfort either. And on top of that, it's not only rational not to read these because they are so difficult to understand and uh, so time-consuming, but they're, of course, non-negotiable as well. And so this notion that I might read one of these terms and conditions or one of these privacy policies and say, you know what, I don't love those terms, but here's my counter-offer on yeah, what not, I'd like really to see It's not really up for debate. <laughs> It's there take is, it or leave it, right? Exactly. It is a take yeah. it or leave it situation. There's no ability to negotiate or engage in any of that dialogue. And so most people, I think, realize that going in. And so if you want the service, here's what it is. You've got to take it as it is. And to a certain extent, I think people are relying on our governments and our privacy commissioners to say, we're going to try to establish legal frameworks that provide at least some amount of protection, that there are at least some boundaries on what acceptable conduct is. And I think one of the problems that we face in Canada today is that those legal rules have failed to keep pace with just the sheer scale of data collection and the kinds of uses that are out there. Absolutely. So do you have any tips? Do you have any tips for the general public of of how to watch out for these things? I mean, I think it starts with sort of the common sense approach of recognizing that that not everything is as it seems and that simply because you see it on the internet or simply because it's available in an app store uh, doesn't mean that you ought to download it. And if something seems a bit too good to be true, wow, I can't believe this service is available and it's free. Or, wow, I can't free. believe free can be a, all this information. a real issue. It unquestionably can that, that oftentimes too good to be true suggests that there is an ulterior motive or there is something taking place. And so some amount of common sense there makes sense. And I think people ought to be somewhat cautious about the sharing of their information. And so I think we live in a connected network world. I mean, the reality is if you want to be actively engaged within society, within your different communities, it's very difficult to simply say, I'm going to shut all of this off or turn it all out. I mean, it simply doesn't happen. But at the same time, uh, recognizing that there is real value in your information, people are looking for that 
data. People may be looking for ways to use the technology in a way that um, is not above board. And so, you know, be, I'm not saying always to be on your guard, but I think to recognize that, in fact, uh, things aren't always as they seem. To the extent to which there are potential concerns, I think the ability to uh, read some of those policies, if necessary, and try to understand some of them, to think about what are you clicking on? Because sometimes there are options there, especially for more reputable organizations who aren't allowed to say, in order to provide this service, we want your data for all these other extraneous services. They've got to at least provide some amount of options there. And so while they have built in the nudges typically on their sites and services to encourage you to say yes, and people sometimes feel bad about saying no, it's totally okay to say no uh, when it comes to some of the kinds of suggestions or requests that these organizations make when they ask for some of your personal information. My conversation with Dr. Geist left me with a lot of thoughts. And I couldn't stop thinking about the mother who posted photos of her kids online. Even if she had read the terms and conditions that she agreed to, I doubt it would have said somewhere in there that 10 years down the road, her photos would be used to fuel a facial recognition database. I started wondering whether there's a way to not only give proper consent for the sharing of our data, but also a way to potentially update the terms or even revoke that consent in the future. A responsible way that this technology could exist, because it's not all doom and gloom. Turns out there is a way this could happen. It's through a thing called a data trust. To learn more, I called Bianca Wiley. Bianca is a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, and she has a dual background in technology and public engagement. Bianca, I want to ask you about data trusts because I, I, you know, I've done some googling, I've found some writing by you and and some some of your work about data trusts, and I got to say, I don't understand it. I don't get it. So can you tell me what is a data trust? How does it work? Tell me more about how all this plays out. Um, before I get into that, uh, into the what it is, I just want to preface it by saying the only thing I would love for people to leave here knowing is that data trusts are about conversations and they're about processes. They are about bringing people together around a table to try to address the fact that, to your point, consent in the way it is inscribed in technology now is not fulfilling its purpose. So what we know we need to do is figure out alternative ways to get together, talk about how things are used when they have a collective and shared impact, and try to put that into a process that is repeatable and something that we can go back to. And that is what data trusts are for, which is probably more important than understanding the legal and other elements of them. But basically, at a very, very basic level, a trust is, it's, it's a legal instrument where you have a trustee who is someone that is being put in charge of managing some kind of a shared or like very rarely one, but an asset. So if you can imagine, it's like setting up a way to say, this is a thing I care about. I want the, and now you can start to think about your data as I'm talking, right? Data. And this is a thing I care about. What is a system where I could help, you know, others access it or use it 
under terms that I'm comfortable with? And how do I do that in a way that is an ongoing conversation? So it really sets it up. So you've got a trust, you know, you've got a trustee, you've got beneficiaries who are the people who care about this stuff. If you think about a civic data trust, you're thinking about more than one trustee. You're thinking about maybe a group of people who come together and look at an asset and say, how do we want to use it? How don't we want to use it? How do we write that down? And what makes it legal? And there's different legal frameworks for these things, but it's not software. It's not a piece of paper and you one and done and you're solved because you signed it. It's actually fundamentally a way to get people around a table to talk about their use of the, of the data. So if we're going to talk about data as an asset, and as we know, data is a massive part of artificial intelligence. So you think about if data is a thing, we're going to get around a table and say, okay, what is this? What are the terms that we want to use it under? Um, who do we want to use it? Who don't we want to use it? Is it commercially viable stuff? Not. Are we uncomfortable if you use it in a way for money? Whatever. All those conversations, you can have them and define them in a data trust. And then you can keep going back to them. From what I could uh, parse out of my research in data trusts, the thing that seemed the most attractive to me was this idea that you're you're building a framework and a conversation in such a way that it allows you to potentially change your mind. That yes. it, al- it allows you yes. to not yes. hold yourself to an absolute, that's what we said back then, d- therefore we have to keep doing it this way. It's the evolution yes. of, of thought, it's the evolution of society, it's the evolution of the technology itself, and going like, hey guys, what's what got us here might not get us to the next phase, and what we agreed to back there, I don't think we feel that way anymore. And let's build ourselves the permission to potentially change our minds. And I yes, love that. And I love it too. And the thing about it that is wonderful is that it is complementary to law. In that law, you have statutory review periods where it takes five years to get to a thing. And good. It's really important stuff. Like, don't rattle around with laws because people are getting, you know, hot about something. Like, that's, I don't want that to change. But I want there to be a place where you can be adaptive and be responsive within the constraints of what was deeply thought about for that time period, right? So they, 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 there's a complementarity to those two systems that is wonderful because I get very worried when I see the knee-jerk law stuff coming, you know? Like, okay, we're having problems, so let's do what they did in that country because that seems a little bit better than what we're doing. And it's like, no, 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 like, no, that is not enough for us. Like, that is not good enough. And that is not drawing on what is wonderful about having, see, this is so important, having experts who have all day, all year, all their experience to exert it in these places, we cannot get rid of that. Talking with Bianca made me feel better about the future of our data, particularly if it's held in a trust where we are allowed the future freedom and flexibility to change our minds. But as with many of these kind of things, the devil is in the details. I wonder how data trusts will be maintained, especially as time goes by. This issue of building future flexibility into the decisions we make today is a really important one. Because the ways that artificial intelligence and facial recognition technology are applied will change as time goes on. 
Tomorrow's uses may be something we haven't even dreamed up yet, and I get excited when I think of the possibilities. It's also why creating principles for the responsible use of AI, things like prioritizing privacy, is so important. So that it can be a technology that we trust because we've done the work to make it trustworthy. That's going to start with putting people first and taking a human-centered approach. And make no mistake, we all have a responsibility in putting that work in. It's not just a job for governments or corporations, which actually points us in the direction of our next episode. Thanks for listening to AI Meets World. Be sure to tune in next week when we explore whether or not artificial intelligence can be impartial, particularly in the workplace, and why the need to design for diversity is great. AI Meets World is brought to you in partnership with Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. I'm Avery Swartz. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Stephanie Chan and Kieran Rana. Our musical composer and sound designer is Olivia Pasquarelli. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. It'll go a long way towards helping other listeners find us. See you next time.